Well, all right, we might be a little uh, sluggish, huh? Too much, uh, you know, too much beef breeds unbelief. But, you know, here's what we can do. We could, uh, we could all stand up. I'll show you a little something we do uh, down in my neck of the woods that kind of gets the blood flowing, kind of gets you going. Uh, why, don't, why don't we all stand up? There you go. And here, here's, it's hard, hard to do, yeah, yeah. Well, here's, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your hand. This will get your blood flowing. This will get you, get you going. Take your hand uh, straight out and take it and put it right between your shoulder blades like this. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to bring it straight out like this and back like this. Straight out like this, about like this. My, oh, my. I didn't know we had so many Braves fans here in South Texas. Man, oh, man. Well, you can sit down. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> hey, uh, Juan, we got Juan. Are you, your name's Juan, right? We got Juan. Juan is a professional mariachi player. <laughs> but Juan, stand up, because I've heard you can do this. I heard, I heard your, friend, your friends told me. That you can give give what I was trying what I was trying to do what Gringo was trying to do earlier, you can give the uh, official Mexican mariachi shout. I've heard you can do this. This this is what it's going to sound like when Jesus comes back right here. There you go. There you go. That was really good. I could have never done that in a million years, Juan. Thank you. <laughs> All right, let's get our Bibles out and let's turn this evening to the book of Isaiah. And I'm so excited. I'm so excited about tonight. I have the privilege to talk about the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ when he returns to this earth in power and in great glory. We're in Isaiah chapter 63. The prophet asks the question, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, Traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments. And I have stained all my robes. Father in heaven, thank you for your son Jesus. The more we get to know him, the more in awe we become of him. He is mighty in battle. He is mighty in war. He is mighty in righteousness and in justice. And yet he is mighty to save. Lord, speak to our hearts tonight. 
in a very special way. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Though you may or may not have read these verses before, if you're a patriotic American, you have heard a song that was inspired by this message. The music was written by a rowdy band of soldiers at the outset of the Civil War. Originally, the tune was called John Brown's Body, mocking one of the soldiers. It amounted to a bar tune that was used to rally the war-wearied morale of the Union troops. But one day in November of 1861, a devout abolitionist, her name was Julia Ward Howe, she heard the song played by a military band during a troop review in Washington. The melody stuck in her mind. And that night, she awoke from sleep with the lyrics. Stanzas began to twine together as she lay in her bed. She jumped up. She found a pen. And she scrawled the words before she had forgotten them. And what were those words that she wrote? Here they are. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. And then the chorus, glory, glory, hallelujah. Our God is marching on. Sounds like Isaiah 63 set to music. You and I recognize Julia Ward Howe's lyrics as the battle hymn of the Republic. For Americans, it's one of our favorite hymns. It's played at most patriotic celebrations. Interestingly, it was Winston Churchill's favorite song. The battle hymn was played at the memorial for the 9-11 victims in the week following the terrorist attacks. It's featured at most presidential inaugurations. And the last recorded words of Martin Luther King Jr. the night before his assassination were these, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Howe's lyrics have a long and rich history. This picture here in Isaiah 63 of Jesus in the wine press trampling his enemies is embedded in American culture. Surely when Julia Ward Howe was awakened that night with these lyrics forming in her head, she had previously been reading been meditating on Isaiah 63 and on our theme text for the week, Revelation 19. It was the start of the Civil War. The conflict was looming large. Much was at stake. Julia Howe and her husband had been working tirelessly to try to put an end to slavery, but now that war was imminent, she wondered how many men would have to die. Perhaps she turned again to her Bible for comfort. She reflected on the final war, the war that ends all wars. At the Battle of Armageddon, Jesus will come a second time. He'll move swiftly and justly. I'm sure Julia hoped her war would be just but swift. Revelation 19 and Isaiah 63 sees into the future and describes the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Revelation 19, heaven opens. And Jesus is seen on the back of a horse, a white horse. Understand, this is not a show pony. This is not a race horse. This is not even a work horse. This is a war horse. John doesn't see Jesus floating 
down from heaven on a bank of fluffy, cumulus clouds. He's on the back of a stallion. It's been bred for battle. It's shaking its mane. It's stomping its hooves. Hot breath billows out of its nostrils. Revelation 19 verse 11 says of its rider, In righteousness he judges and makes war. At his first coming, Jesus entered Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, a beast of burden, the chief servant among the animal kingdom. But there is no donkey this time. Jesus isn't coming to serve, but to slay. His patience has been tapped out. His mercy has been rebuffed for the last time. Now he comes to judge and make war and to do so righteously. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. But apparently he gets that title only after he kills off all his enemies. The Prince of Peace is no pacifist. When Jesus returns to this earth, quite frankly, he'll be coming to bust chops, take names, and start breaking kneecaps. Earlier in Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 42, verse 13, it declares... The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. Revelation 19 provides an ominous description of our Lord Jesus in that day. His eyes like a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. He himself will rule them with a rod of iron. In addition, names are ascribed to Jesus, faithful and true, the word of God. And then on his robe and tatted down his thigh is a name that reads King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's when the writer of Revelation, John the Apostle, he reveals his source material. He's been reading Isaiah 63. For in chapter 19 of Revelation, verse 15, John writes this of Jesus. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. It's the very same imagery of divine judgment we find in the passage in Isaiah 63. Think of the wicked inhabitants of earth as grapes and the world as a wine press full of grapes. The day will come when God will finally put his foot down like a vineyard worker crushing the grapes between his toes. Jesus will tread or trample the wicked of this earth under his feet. Their blood will splatter on his robe. Granted, this is not baby Jesus. This is not gentle Jesus. This is not Jesus blessing the children or even Jesus breaking the bread. This is the Lord Jesus breaking the stiff necks of evildoers who won't stop sinning against God and man. And, if, and understand, if Jesus is king, he has to take this action. He can't let humanity walk into eternity hell-bent on robbing and raping and cheating and swindling. That wouldn't be heaven, that would be hell. I'm sure you've seen the bumper sticker, visualize world peace. Well, to really do so, to visualize this, visualize this picture, 
Jesus annihilates Satan and all who join in his rebellion. He retakes the reins of a runaway planet. He conquers his enemies. He establishes his kingdom. He enforces obedience to his sovereign will. Do you understand that this is the Jesus we deal with? This is the Jesus we pray to? Then and only then will we realize world peace. One Saturday night I was on an airplane. I was taking the red eye back to teach at Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain that morning. And I happened to be teaching on Revelation. Unbeknownst to me, while I was typing away on my computer, the young lady sitting in the seat next to me, she was looking over my shoulder. Well, finally she blurted out. She said, how can you say Jesus crushes his enemies and breaks their stiff necks? How can you say that? And then she said this, that doesn't sound very Joel Osteenish to me. <laughs> now, I'm not picking on Joel, but that's just what she said. In her mind, she had limited the concerns of Jesus to feeding poor people and caring for the elderly and making us all happy. She couldn't imagine why Jesus would prioritize holiness and justice and what's right. She had pushed obeying Jesus to the back of the bus. And let me tell you how I responded to her. I told this lady that what God will do one day to a rebellious people, he has already done to his only son, Jesus. The father sentenced Jesus to crucifixion. The price of sin is death. Thus Jesus died in our place. At the cross, he pardoned our sin, and Jesus satisfied God's justice. That means that when Jesus returns, every death will be a senseless suicide. No one has to die. People do so because they reject Jesus and resist his authority. They put themselves under his wrath. And this is what we find here in Isaiah 63, at the second coming of Jesus. Isaiah lived 800 years before John, yet his prophecy gives details that John didn't envision. The Old Testament prophets saw more than the New Testament writers. John saw heaven open, and he saw Jesus coming with his army. Paul in 2 Thessalonians adds that Jesus will destroy the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth and with the brightness of his coming. Both New Testament writers are reporting on the battle, but from the press box. It's Isaiah, and it's the other Old Testament prophets who give us a more up-close look. Think of Isaiah. He's the reporter who's embedded with the troops. He's a war correspondent filing reports from the battlefield. And he knows that Jerusalem is in trouble. The Lord has watchmen on the walls. Isaiah knows that the city is surrounded. The prophet Joel identified the center stage of the final battle, the Valley of Jehoshaphat. It's right in the heart of Jerusalem. We call it today the Kidron Valley. For Jerusalem's sake, God will not rest. It'll be time to act. Isaiah 62 verse 11 states, Say to the daughter of Zion, Surely your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. Jesus the Savior is coming to reward the righteous and to repay the wicked. Remember in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus warned the Jews of the last days 
when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. This abomination that causes desolation refers to the antics of the Antichrist. It's his army that attacks Jerusalem and forces the Jews to escape to the mountains of Edom. Edom is the region southeast of Jerusalem. Basra was its capital. The last battle is often called Armageddon, but Har-Megiddo, the mountain of Megiddo, is just the staging area. The battle is over Jerusalem, and the Jews are protected, are hidden southeast in Edom. See, the final battle, the Battle of Armageddon, as we call it, covers all of the promised land, north to south. The enemy camps in the north. Refugees flee to the south. Jesus returns to the middle, to Jerusalem, the holy city. Our Lord descends onto the Mount of Olives. His feet land on the same spot where they ascended 2,000 years ago. Revelation 14, 20 speaks again of his treading the grapes. The winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridle for 1,600 furlongs or about 200 miles. 200 miles is the length of Israel from north to south, from Megiddo to Basra. John foresees all Israel, each of her pleasant valleys filled with blood. And here in Isaiah 63, the prophet beholds our King Jesus at the end of this battle. The forces of Antichrist have now been annihilated. The Jews who obeyed and fled to the wilderness have now been rescued. The revolt that has raged for ages between a sinful man and a holy God has finally been decided. The coup's been struck down Jesus Christ has won. And Isaiah says proudly of God's champion, look at him. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. You can hear the pride in the praise in Isaiah's voice. Jesus is the conquering hero and he looks the part Glorious in his apparel. That's another way of saying of a soldier. He's a credit to his uniform. He's also traveling in the greatness of his strength. I picture Jesus marching boldly. Nothing cocky, mind you. No strutting. But he strides with confidence and strength. He carries himself with class, with honor, and with dignity. And then Isaiah asks Jesus a question. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? You see, Jesus is fresh from the battle. He's been stained. He's been to the winepress and his robe has been stained with a reddish stain. Have you ever spilt a glass of wine or grape juice on a white shirt? I mean, you can forget ever getting it completely out. Expect a permanent stain. That wine is almost like a dye. But there's one substance that stains worse than wine, and that's blood. You know, there are companies today that specialize in cleaning up crime scenes and removing the blood. 
It's an art. And Jesus has gotten bloody. Isaiah notices the stains on his garments. He's been to the wine press of judgment. He has trampled the bodies of faithless men. And understand, Jesus makes no apologies here. He offers no disclaimers or justifications for his lethal actions. Only modern man is fuzzy about God's judgment. God is clear. Jesus is clear. We're the ones who've excused our sin and denied our sin and renamed our sin and ignored its penalties and have convinced ourselves that God doesn't care even though he has warned us time and time again that he cares very much. You see, Jesus answers Isaiah, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Jesus got angry while he was on earth, remember. He got angry with the Pharisees. He got angry at unbelief. Jesus got angry several times, but on this day, Jesus gets angry, and it gets messy. He says, their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. After saying, seeing this firsthand, Isaiah could have now sung with Julia Ward Howe, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. But here is the main point of this evening's lesson. I want to draw your attention to what else Jesus says at the end of verse 1. When Isaiah asks him, Who is this who comes from, Basra, from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Jesus answers Isaiah, but look at how he identifies himself. It's, I who speak righteousness, mighty to save. Here he is, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's just proven his supremacy. He's beaten all challengers. He's conquered all rivals. Every uprising he's now put down. And there's no guilt in his heart. Though his robes are splattered with the blood of men, not one drop is innocent blood. He bears no blame. His judgment has been just. He has defended God's people and God's honor. And when Isaiah inquires, the Messiah answers, this is I who speak in righteousness. Jesus is back from the battle, but it's clear he's done right in every instance, in all that he's performed and in all that he's spoken. Hey, let me reiterate this. When all the blood has been spilt and when the birds are feeding on the flesh of wicked men, at last, Jesus will stand righteous. No one will question the justice of his judgments or the fairness of his tactics. He will have pleased the Father in all that he has done. In that day, expect the Father to say yet again, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In that day, listen for the angels. 
Perhaps they'll repeat the praise they spoke at his birth. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace, goodwill toward men. In that day, all of us, all people, will join in and sing, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. But realize, that's not what Jesus says. He doesn't talk about his decisive victory or his righteous warring or his long-awaited judgment or his vindication, the vindication of God's glory or the upholding of God's holiness. Jesus doesn't mention any of that. He's not sorry for what's happened, but there is some remorse for what could have been. For even when the final chapter is written, Jesus identifies himself not as mighty to conquer, not as mighty to judge, but he calls himself mighty to save. To the end, this is what presses on Jesus most, not his skill to fight and war and judge, but his ability to save. You recall in Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet lists a whole repertoire of names for the Messiah. Wonderful, Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, even Mighty God. But when it's all said and done, Jesus isn't focused on being Mighty God. He relishes being Mighty to save. In a verse I read earlier, Isaiah 42, verse 13, it speaks of Jesus. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. Jesus is a mighty man. Look at him in battle. He is mighty in war. It's no surprise that Jesus, the God-man, God-made flesh, is referred to as both mighty God and mighty man. Yet when he refers to himself, it's mighty to save. Read through the Gospels and you'll discover that Jesus was mighty in a million ways. He was mighty in wisdom. Jesus corrected the scholar confounded the skeptic, comforted the sinner, taught his disciples. Jesus was also mighty in power. He calmed the sea and he walked on water and he multiplied the fish and bread and healed the sick and raised the dead. He was mighty in spirit. He resisted the tempter when he was at a point of great weakness. He kept his composure when he was tried before Pilate. Even on the cross, he asked his father to forgive his accusers. Jesus was mighty in discernment. With the woman at the well, Jesus steered the conversation to coax her into examining her own soul. He read the hearts of people. Often he knew their thoughts before they spoke. And he was mighty in the scriptures. Jesus had a command of God's word. He spoke simply yet powerful. He taught like no one else. He had an authority from God. But here at the end of the age... Jesus doesn't identify himself as mighty in wisdom or mighty in power or mighty in spirit or mighty in discernment or mighty in the scriptures. No, he calls himself mighty to save. This is the heart of Jesus. Here's what makes Jesus tick. If you're looking for a motive of this, he is definitely guilty. Jesus is mighty to save. He loves saving people. And my friends, he's good at it. In fact, there is no one he can't save. 
Zacchaeus, that tax collector, the little short guy with a long list of sins. You remember him? He had betrayed his fellow Jews to strong arm for Rome. He defrauded his own people and took more tax than was necessary. He was a greedy little guy. Jesus first saw Zacchaeus up in a sycamore tree. Zacchaeus climbed up the tree for a better look. Yet it was Jesus who looked into his heart. He took an interest in a man who had cut himself off from others, who had burned all his bridges. When Jesus showed up at Zacchaeus' house, people criticized him. He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Well, of course he did. Jesus is mighty to save, and who else needs to be saved but sinners? Jesus forgave Zacchaeus, and it felt so good. Zac made restitution so he'd be forgiven by the people he'd defrauded. He fell in love with being forgiven. The visit Jesus paid to Zacchaeus changed his life forever. And in Luke 19, verse 10, Jesus explains his motives in the matter. He says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. In fact, Jesus is mighty to save. Of all the things that Jesus is mighty in doing, he was mightiest to save. Think of all the examples. The woman taken in adultery. She was taken in the very act, naked and angry and fuming, as they threw her down at Jesus' feet. Yet he showed her mercy, exposed her accusers, and gave her a brand new start. Or the puzzled rabbi Nicodemus. Nick just couldn't figure it out. How could a man be born again? Once you leave your mother's womb, there's no going back. Yet Jesus pointed him to the Holy Spirit and to faith in God's Son. He led him to be saved. And what about the lame man who was lured through the roof again? Jesus was mighty to save. Not only did Jesus heal his crippled legs, but he forgave his sins, an even greater miracle. And what about Mary Magdalene? Her heart was a hostile for seven demons. Yet Jesus, mighty to save, evicted them all. And what about Saul of Tarsus? He was a Jewish rabbi who hated all things Jesus especially Jesus' followers. Saul was en route to Damascus to kill Christians when Jesus appeared to him on the roadside. It was as if Jesus had looked up in heaven and picked out the most unlikely convert he could find. He saw Saul breathing threats and murder, says the scripture. I mean, this would be like Jesus picking the chief imam of ISIS. I mean, the top terrorist. Picking him out just to save him, just to show off how amazing his grace can really be. Jesus intercepted Saul, and in one glorious moment, he chose him, and he saved him, and he called him. In fact, years later, Saul, now named Paul, explains this is exactly what happened. He writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show a pattern to those who are going to believe on him. In Paul, Jesus set a precedent. He picked out the biggest, vilest bully on the block, and he saved him gloriously. Paul says Jesus came to save sinners, and to prove it from the start, he saved me. Paul would agree, Jesus is mighty to save. I want you to know my eyes have seen things. 
I have seen the most unlikely people saved by Jesus Christ. People who've been drugged through the dregs of this world, who had fully embraced the dark side, who had shaken their fists in God's face. Mean people. People addicted and shameful and perverted and greedy and hateful. I've seen people who fit these descriptions and more get saved. Had a secretary for years who was a former Wiccan witch. Jesus saved her. Never think there's anyone who's a hopeless cause. That he or she is beyond the reach of Jesus. They're not. Jesus is mighty to save. Many years ago, my wife and I, we were walking out of a movie theater. And there was a bar next door to the movie theater. And the Lord put it on my heart to witness to the guy who was out front collecting the cover charges. Big old burly guy. Well, when I finally mustered the courage to obey, it took me a while. He'd already gone back inside of the bar. I was under so much conviction, I went after him. He had moved from money collector to bartender. I approached him and I asked him if we could talk. And as I began to explain that God had prompted me to come in and to talk to him, this big man suddenly had a tear in his eye. It started rolling down his cheeks. And as I explained the forgiveness of God and the love of Jesus Christ, I'll never forget him asking me. He said, but what if I murdered someone? As if he had. I looked him straight in the eye and I said, there is nothing you've done that Jesus can't forgive. Nothing. And I believe that. With all my heart, I believe that. Jesus is mighty to save. Years ago, I read that Jeffrey Dahmer had become a Christian. Some of you might remember in the 1990s, Dahmer was one of America's most notorious serial killers. He was known as the Milwaukee cannibal for dismembering his victims and worse. The story goes, once he completed his confession, he asked the detective for a Bible. After reading it and speaking to a chaplain, he gave his life to Jesus. In May 1994, Dahmer was baptized in the prison's whirlpool. A couple of months later, he was shanked by an inmate. Was his conversion sincere? Was it real? Only God knows. But was it possible? Absolutely. Can a man guilty of cannibalism and worse end up next to you in heaven? You bet he can. You might recoil at the thought, but Jesus, my friends, is mighty to save. And for him to save me, I can't resent him saving whoever else he chooses to save. I just know salvation is his specialty. Saving sinners is in his wheelhouse. If a person is truly sincere and genuinely desires to change and trust Jesus with his whole heart, there is nothing Jesus won't forgive. Sometimes when you find a forgiving soul, Sometimes it's actually an evidence of weakness. They're just a pushover. They're soft. Oh, they just rather say that I forgive you than really deal with the offense. They just like to drop the issue. They don't want to deal with a legitimate injustice. They lack some moral fortitude. Forgiveness is sort of a pathology for these people. It's their sickness. 
There are people not strong enough to confront. They capitulate and they explain their cowardice as forgiveness. Believe me, this is not Jesus. He speaks and does what is righteous. There is no weakness in Jesus. Recall, he is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Jesus is never manipulated. He's never con. Trust me, Jesus has no problem with confrontation. One day he's going to trot down sinners in his anger, and he is going to trample sinful people in his fury. There's no need for me to soften these words. It's right before you in your Bible. Just read it. It's what Isaiah says. Jesus is nobody's pushover. When you give him no other choice, when you harden your heart and stubbornly go your own way, Jesus doesn't get queasy. He has a heart to save, but he also has a stomach to judge. Rest assured, Jesus forgives, not from any kind of weakness, but from his strength and from his overwhelming love. Jesus is mighty to save. And when he says you're forgiven, trust me, you are forgiven. Here's the good news. On the cross, a price was paid. Willingly, Jesus laid down his life for sinful men. God continues to see in us his image. For some reason, we are still the object of his love. God planned our salvation before time began. And it was Jesus' job to carry it out. And he has done so in earnest. In fact, our text tells us that this is what will characterize Jesus until the end of time. That he is mighty to save. And realize this prowess to save doesn't just mean that Jesus is able to reach low. To the slimiest sinner. Bottom fish, so to speak. Jesus can save the man in the gutter. But that's not all that this means. To say that Jesus is mighty to save also means that his salvation extends from the guttermost to the uttermost. I love Hebrews 7 verse 25. It tells us Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. It's not just the extent from which Jesus saves. It's about the extent to which Jesus saves. Realize that when we get to heaven, we're never going to hear anybody make the comment, Woo, that was close. Man, I got in by the skin of my teeth. No way. Nobody barely gets saved. Jesus is mighty to save. That means the person that he saves is genuinely and eternally and fully and freely and deeply and lavishly and unequivocally saved. If you are forgiven by the blood of Jesus, then you're as forgiven as you'll ever be. God doesn't assign parole or offer probation. God only passes out complete pardons. It's like a pregnancy. A woman can't be partially pregnant. Oh, oh, she's barely pregnant. No. And likewise, you can't be barely saved or partially saved. You're either saved or you're not. And if you're saved by Jesus, you are fully saved. Our Lord Jesus is mighty to save. That means he covers all the bases. He's attentive to all the details. 
Nothing slips through the cracks or escapes his notice. His salvation is comprehensive and guaranteed. For example, Jesus forgives all our sins, past sins, present sins. He even forgives our future sins that we haven't yet committed. Certainly, we need to live in faith and in repentance, but even our future sin has been washed by the blood of Jesus. Jesus paid for it all. His salvation is comprehensive coverage. It includes forgiveness and acceptance and peace and restoration and healing and joy and wisdom, the baptism and the power of the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts, streets of gold and riches untold. It's all in the policy. You need to go back and read it. If you're not experiencing a full and free salvation, friend, you're living below your privileges. Jesus promises for your victory. Our agent is mighty to save. Recently, a Tokyo woman, she was saved by the combined effort of all of her fellow commuters. Apparently, she's a very skinny lady. She had fallen through the eight-inch gap that's between the train and the platform in the Tokyo subway. It was a Monday in the middle of rush hour traffic. A public announcement went out that a passenger had been trapped. It caused 40 people to muscle up. The train had a suspension that allows it to lean. And so her fellow travelers pushed the 32-ton train away from the platform to allow just enough room for the woman to be rescued. She was pulled to safety. Her salvation was a community effort. But your salvation was not. It was accomplished by one person and one person alone. Notice what Jesus says to Isaiah when he comes up from Basra. I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. The fury he unleashes, the righteous anger he demonstrates is very personal to Jesus. You know, you, oh, well, God doesn't take, God does take it personal. Jesus takes it personal. No one was with him when he came up from Boswell. He did it all by himself. He judged alone. You know, while on earth, Jesus went out of his way to get other people involved in his work. When he healed the sick, he often recruited the help of others. When he raised Lazarus, he had other folks move the stone. When he multiplied the loaves and fish, he used a little boy's lunch. Jesus was always involving others in his exploits, but not here. Not at the end of the age. Not when he returns. What an irony. The billion cries for justice that have been ringing in God's ears for centuries are finally answered by the one man who is mighty to save. And this brings up a vital point. When you get angry over the injustices that you see, or when you become concerned that evil men are getting their way, that their crimes are going unpunished, certainly employ the system. Take the proper channels. God created government to keep evildoers in check. But once you've done all that the law allows, don't go further and take matters into your own hands. Romans 12 verse 19 tells us, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. 
There is only one person that God has trusted with final judgment. And that is his son, Jesus Christ. The one who is mighty to save is the only one that God allows to mete out and execute his righteousness and his judgment. There's a big reason that Jesus does this work solo. It's because his work to save was also done all by himself. No one went to the cross with Jesus. Salvation was not a tag team effort. Jesus needed nor did he ask for anyone else's help. He died alone. He bore our sin all by himself. It wasn't 40 people pushing the bus so you could be saved. Only one brave Savior did all the heavy lifting. There's only one person to whom you're indebted and to whom you should be thankful. And his name is Jesus. He is mighty to save. On an overseas flight, two men were sitting next to each other. There was a Christian and there was a Hindu. They were sitting side by side and they began a conversation. It eventually came around to religion. At one point, the Christian asked him, he said, Can you give me a single sentence, a one-liner that captures the essence of your faith? The Hindu man said, Yes, we are all part of the problem and we are all part of the solution. That's a good summation of Hinduism. Well, the Christian thought for a long time about the man's answer. Finally, he said, would you like to hear a one-liner that captures the essence of the Christian faith? The Hindu man said, yes. The Christian replied, we are all part of the problem, but there is only one man who is the solution, and his name is Jesus. In God's plan for the ages, Jesus does two things all by himself. He hangs on a cross to author our salvation and he treads out the wine press to bring God's ultimate judgment. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He has trampled out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. But Jesus has a greater glory. He says it himself. And I hope you have ears to hear deep in your soul for Jesus the Messiah is mighty to save.